What is going on, everyone? What is cooking? This is scriptwriter Steve. You reach my podcast, Barbecue Two Movies. Yeah, I talk about anything here. Today, I'll be talking about barbecue, and I'll be talking about climate change because you know my barbecue. We love to carbon pollute. And today is May seventh, twenty twenty-one. But today's podcast is for May sixth. Right now, it's four twelve a.m. in the morning. Yeah, I'm one of those people. I like to stay up late. All right, I'm going to turn this down. How was your day going? How is your day going? I think that's the correct way to say it. You know, I'm just about to wrap up my day because later on today, I think I have to get up maybe at around, I think I'm going to like get up maybe close to the crack of noon today because I've been uh, burning the midnight oil a little. Um, After I finish this podcast, I think I'll still, I still will do some work on some photos. I really want to get these uh, photos done for my couple here, uh, one of my favorite couples in the world because they are Trump supporters. And uh, I want to get that done out there, but I want to get it done good, you know, there's one thing when you're when you're in business, you got to do things good. You got to give your best, your all to every single client out there. And even when I open up my new barbecue business, every single person who walks into that door or buys barbecue from me, I swear that will be my best barbecue. I will serve them that day. You know, some days you're better, you have an off day and an on day, but you know, that's just the way it is, right? Sometimes, even, even when you do photography, you have an on day and an off day, right? But usually when you're a professional, those on days or off days, even when you're off, you're still better than the rest. So, and when you're on, you're just better than yourself, right? And, and that's and that's what I'm saying. You know, like uh, you know, when I say off, don't think I'm saying, hey, I'm crappy. You know, I'm never crappy. I'm, you know, some people may think I'm crappy, but you know, myself, nah, I don't think so. So anyway, I had yesterday was an incredible, just an incredible business day for my future barbecue business. Now, I'll tell you one thing. Now, I know some of you out there may not believe in God. I don't care. For me, I believe in God, but I believe that God is not a God of poverty. You know, when you pray to him, when you ask him for things or anything, he's going to take you, he's going to present maybe the opportunity. He may present to you uh, maybe the luck that takes you to to, to get into that opportunity, right? Um, but it's really up to you. When you arrive at that turning point that God God has basically set you up for, it's really up to you what you're going to do with it, right? You, you come to this fork in the road, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to take advantage of it and you know put your foot your right foot forward, or are you just going to do a little turnaround, circle back, and go back home? And I think that really defines you know a lot of us out there when we start to pray for you know for things to happen, and we're just waiting for miracles to just you know rain down on us and. Some of, some of us think that, hey, I want God to handle everything for me. But usually, well, at least in my case, it doesn't happen that way. All right, so what happened yesterday? Well, um, well we have to back up a few days ago. So uh, as a barbecue, and even if you're a back room, a back in a back room, a backyard barbecue like myself, um, sourcing wood is always an adventure. Uh, so myself, just, you know, when you're a backyard barbecuer, uh, even if you have your own little chimney, right, in your house, you know, from all of my mainland listeners, right, and when you, when you go through the winters, you have to source wood for that winter coming up, right, and you have to split wood, right, so 
Now, for those in the mainland, it's pretty easy for you to source wood because all you have to do is head down to Lowe's or maybe if you live in Texas, a Bucky's or something like that. And you can get firewood, right? You can get barbecue, you can get wood to barbecue over there in Bucky's, over there in Texas, which is just incredible. Here in Hawaii, we're not so fortunate. You know, we live on an island, wood is scarce. And um, even if like Kiawe, which you know, kind of gross like weeds over here. Um, it's just a really good tasting weed. Why don't we say that when you smoke it? Uh, you know, it's just really hard to find. It's really, really hard to find. Now, with that being said, uh, when I look, when I, when I do my backyard barbecuing, I have to source my wood. So I've gotten my wood from all different places, from people who are clearing their yards to golf courses that are clearing their way. And I've just picked up their wood. And, um, you know, I've taken a ch- you, my little chainsaw and, you know, sawed the wood there in my backyard and taken an axe and chopped it, it splits. Never had the most beautiful splits, but, you know, they've, they've done, you know, a pretty good job. And uh, that's how I've got to my, my wood for the last couple of years that I've been barbecuing. Now, I've never had really, really good professional split kiave. And when I'm talking really good splits on kiave, I'm talking about splitting not the branches but the trunk and the trunk will just give you these very very nice big chunks of pieces and all that so what happens here is that um uh, my cousin calls up my dad and he says hey you know he, he actually had found uh this property and they were getting rid of they had uh, uprooted 40 trees and uh they were just uh, gonna get rid of them and they're gonna give away their calve for free now free is the best price out there, of course, right? So, you know, my, my dad gets the information from Reed and he asked me, hey, Steve, you want to go down and get some wood? And I said, yeah, of course. You know, even though we're not, you know, we're kind of good on wood right now because uh, we got some from, we, we actually got some from the city and county park that we actually bike at. And they were, we were lucky enough to pick up some wood there. Um, it's not the best chunks of wood, but it's Kiave, right? Uh, but anyway, I, I told my dad, yeah, you know, you know, we could always use more kiava, so why, why not head down there, right? So we head down there this morning, and uh, we we have a hard time finding this list of locations. This location, it's over in Wai- it's over in Waianae, um, and over in Waianae, they just happen to steal a lot of the the street signs. So it's hard to find where this one location was. So we finally get to this one location. And uh, again, the deal is leg- completely completely legit. Uh, they have they have uprooted forty trees, forty kiave trees, and um, they're out there, you know, just laying out there on the side. And on first look, I'm <laughs> saying to myself, "There's no way I'm going to cut this kiave wood because the diameter of these trunks here are about maybe four feet wide, uh, five feet wide." Um, they are huge. Um, and uh, my chainsaw uh, is not that big. I mean, I, I can cut branches. I can prune a kiave tree, right? Uh, I can't cut through a 60-year-old kiave tree where their, their trunk is just huge. So, um, but anyway, I tell myself, okay, you know, I'm going to stay positive here. Uh, I'll cut my off. I cut myself some few branches and then I, I'll... Um, uh, I'll see what happens and make the best of a really kind of bad situation. So I sit on the back of my truck bed, put on my shoes here, and uh, I hear someone call out my name, Steve. Oh, Steve. <laughs> and I look over to who's calling out my name. 
And it's this old man sitting in the uh, his driver's side of his truck, of his truck, right over his uh, Ford F one fifty, white, nice, beautiful Ford F one fifty, and he has like one of those green, bright green construction shirts on. And uh, and I say to myself, is he talking to me, or is he talking to another Steve? You know, Steve is a very common name, right? So he yells out again to me, hey Steve. So I said, is it, who is that? I can't see it. I can't see who it is. So my dad, um, he's just walking around checking out the entire property because it's just really, I think, one and a half acre lot just full of Kiavi trees, right? And they're just clearing it. So he he ends up walking down and the, and the old man, he ends up yelling, Bill, Bill. And that's my dad's name. <laughs> and my dad ends up walking over to him. And then both of them end up waving waving over to me and say, hey, just bring your truck over, just bring your truck over. So I said, who is this guy? My dad must know him. So I end up driving down there. And uh, and then I guess I get closer. <laughs> Lo and behold, I see who it is. It's Hank. <laughs> now, who is Hank, of course? Now, what's the backstory on Hank? This, uh, I met Hank when I was in the seventh grade. All right, so I'm not sure how old I was back then, maybe 12, 13, 14, 15. I'm not sure how old you are. I don't have my own children, so I have no idea uh, how old you have to be to be in the seventh grade. But that's when I met Hank, when I was in the seventh grade. I'm 44 years old right now, so it's been a while, right? And uh, But then again, I saw Hank maybe about three years ago over in Chinatown. So, so uh, I started talking to Hank, and I remember he had told me that... Um, that he had owned a, a Kiave tree company, uh, uh, I guess that supplied wood to restaurants. And, you know, I, we were just talking about Hank in the car. And then my dad said, you know, I'm not sure if I have Hank's phone number. And I said, yeah, I wish we had Hank's phone number. And here we go. Hank is right in front of us in the flesh. Now, again, I had met Hank in the seventh grade when my father, my mother, and I, and my cousin we all decided to take a trip on the East Coast. We took it from Canada down to Florida. And we all packed up in these, you know, these tour buses and we hit every single state, uh, almost every single state, all the way down to Florida. And um, it was great. And um, Hank and his uh, girlfriend back then, who is now his wife, uh, you know, they were traveling and, um, and they became really good seat buddies with us, really good friends, because they sat right next to us, and, and we loved it. We loved hanging around Hank and, every, and Arlene. It was just great, and we, uh, you know, spent that entire trip, you know, eating dinner together and everything, became very close friends, and uh, it just so happens when um, my dad found out that Hank was actually a principal at some of these schools that, that my dad worked at, and, uh, you know, we continued that friendship, so it was great. Now, <laughs> we're going to be doing business again because apparently he, again, like I said, he cuts Kiavi wood uh, for a living. He's what they call like, I mean, he's, he's, he's a lot, he's a logger, you know? He, so, so um, this, so and anyway, what ends up happening is that uh, he takes a look at my chainsaw <laughs> and uh, he just completely just laughs at it because it's, it looks like a little toy to what he has in the back of his truck bed. And he has these beautiful, you know, $1,000 steels in the back. I mean, their, their chainsaws are built to cut, you know, trunks, uh, tree trunks that are five foot wide. And it's beautiful things. And I said, man, this is beautiful. And he even had me grab one of them. And you know what? 
the gas is not as heavy as my battery chainsaw, which is which is pretty interesting. So, but anyway, with all that being said, he told me, "Are you going to cut that wood with your chainsaw?" I said, "Well, I wasn't thinking about that piece of wood." And he says, "You know what, Steve? Just come with me, follow me to my shop, and I'll hook you up." Right? And I said, "Really?" And he goes, "Yeah, really." And and then so anyway, we end up, you know, we end up following him to his shop. All of that wood, that Kiavi wood, he was there to go basically take all that Kiavi wood, that the, all those 40 trees that they were uprooting. And um, he was going to, he had a dump truck on the way that was going to, and a, he had a crane that was going to pick up all of these huge, huge trees, put it into the dump truck, and then he would dump it over at his property where he would then, you know, again, cut it into pieces for, for barbecue. So we go over to his like uh, his shop, which is maybe just one valley over, a five-minute drive, five, ten-minute drive. And again, he, he is splitting wood. He cuts wood professionally. This is what he does as a hobby and also for a business. Well, he is retired now. He just does this for fun. So <laughs> I am like, you know, I'm like, wow, this, you know, Hank does this for fun. You know, can we talk business? And we start talking business and we end up, he ends up saying, you know what? Um, yeah, I'll become your wood supplier for your barbecue company. And already he's supplying wood for other restaurants. And now... I would just become another one of his clients. And uh, I, st- I have still yet to get the price from him, but he, but of course, you know, the quality of the wood's going to be good. And that's one thing too, because I've, I've worked with a lot of people who, uh, who want to supply me wood. And a lot of times you take a look at their splits, they're not very good. They won't burn very good. In fact, I may, I may split wood at my house a lot better than they split wood. And plus, secondly, I don't want kiln-dried wood. Kiln-dried wood... It doesn't have the personality and the flavor of just naturally dried wood. If you dry wood naturally out there, it's great. It's really, 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 really great because you have it won't dry too dry. You'll have it'll have still a little a little moisture in there, so you have a little smoke, and that's what you want. And you don't want a lot of smoke, but you want a little smoke. If you have too much water in your wood, it won't burn. If you have too little, you won't have any flavor. If you have it completely dry then it's no good. It's completely, you might as well be burning propane. It's the same thing. So it has no flavor whatsoever. So anyway, <laughs> what happens is that now <laughs> I have a wood supplier for my future barbecue company. This is awesome. This, <laughs> this, uh, this takes a huge check mark off the things that you need when you open up a barbecue company. You need a supplier. You need a wood supplier. Um, you know, it, it was to a point where when I was talking to Pitmaster Keith and we were thinking about maybe even opening up our own tree cutting company before the barbecue company so we could source Kiave wood, split it, and then store it and dry it. But now we have someone who would do it for us and store, store the wood on his property and dry it for us on his property, split it, give us beautiful splits from the trunk, not just from the branches. And, uh, you know go from there. So this is great. It's really, really good. And in fact, we may even, you know, he had a pile that was even, he said it was his throwaway kiave, but I think we can even burn that kiave. I think that's fine. I think it's okay to burn that, those, burn that kiave if it's split into the right pieces. So that's it. And, uh, and again, God put me in the right place. Uh, who would have known? That, you know, a gentleman who I had met in the seventh grade on a vacation with my parents would eventually end up helping my barbecue business 
that I'm going to be opening up in 2021. I mean, <laughs> that is just strange. That is just weird. I mean, is that God or is that just, you know, is that just, you know, luck? Who knows what it is, right? But to me, I will, I will say that God presented me with the opportunity. You know, I took the step forward and now I've just, you know, checked off that little box right there when it says wood supplier. <laughs> and that is just huge for me. So I don't, so all I have to worry about now is purchasing the right smoker out there and marketing our business and creating the story that we want to tell when it comes to marketing our meats. Anyway, that's it for now. So now, is this podcast today about barbecue? And I guess it was, right? But I'm going to, I'm going to segue into something maybe entirely different right now because I want to talk about climate change. And what does that have to do with barbecue? Well, it's because, well, a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, environmentalists, well, I wouldn't even call them environmentalists because they don't really care about the environment. Um, a lot of climate change activists, we'll call them that, are targeting or will be targeting barbecue businesses because we just love to put CO2 into the atmosphere. Uh, again, we love to burn wood, right? And what's you know, we're we're putting a lot more CO two in, into the atmosphere than your car. You know, your car burns with your catalytic converter puts very little CO two into the atmosphere. But you're going out there and you're burning, you know, you're burning wood. You're burning a lot of wood, by the way. You're putting your carbon footprint at a barbecue restaurant's pretty rather pretty large. So. What's going to happen in the future? Will they hit me with a lot of carbon credits uh, because they're going to blame me for destroying the earth? Uh, who the hell knows, right? But I want to talk about climate change. And um, do I believe in climate change? Well, yes, I do. But do I believe in man-made climate change, especially man-made climate change uh, that will exponentially destroy the earth because that's what they talk about when it comes to climate change when they say climate change they're saying that man-made climate change man, man will actually accelerate uh climate change exponentially they love that word exponentially by the way and basically destroy the earth uh, and we have to do whatever whatever we can before we reach that tipping point even though that tipping point had already happened 15 years ago you know we have to do something before it's too late and they consider climate change an existential threat. And they, you know, what will they do during, I guess, a climate crisis, right? Because they believe we are in a climate crisis right now. So anyway, I'm going to cut the commercial and I'll get back right after these messages. I hope you join me on the other side and we'll get into this whole climate change debate. Hey, what's going on, everyone? It's scriptwriter Steve with a shameless plug for my company, Dream Weddings Hawaii. So if you want to get married in Hawaii, if you want to get your vows renewed in Hawaii, and if you want some family pictures in Hawaii, make sure you check me out. So my website is dreamweddingshawaii.com. So that's dream, weddings with a S, Hawaii spelled out, dot com. Okay, everyone, I hope you're back from the commercial break. It wasn't too long, right? All you had to do is listen to me ramble about Anchor 
and then listen to me ramble about my own company. By the way, for those of you who booked with me, gave me business through Dream Wedding Hawaii, thank you so much. If you're listening right now and you've shared my podcast, thank you so much. If you hate me, well, screw you. <laughs> okay, I'm going to turn this music down. Oh, that's kind of positive music. I kind of like that. But I got to get talking about this crime, this climate crisis that we're going through, right? Okay, so let's get straight to it. Now, again, um, do I believe in climate change? Just to refresh your memory. Yes, I do, because I believe the climate is always changing. Now, do I believe that it's changing because of man? I do think maybe that man could actually change the climate or maybe, you know, make, uh, I guess, certain areas warmer than it actually is, or sometimes even colder than it actually is. Um, but right now, you know, here's the thing. When it comes to science, right, and whenever you hear, I guess, the, the favorite word, I think, of the left is that we should always follow the science. The science is in, the debate is over, now it's time to obey. So when they say obey, they mean follow. Now, here's the thing, and I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I never believe that science should ever be followed. It should always be interpreted. You should always stay a healthy skeptic when it comes to science. You know, don't dip into the paranoia you know, realm because you know, when, when you dip into paranoia, you know, we start you know, thinking things that just really don't make any sense. We're, we're dipping into things that are very much fictional. But I have to tell you, Science is not exact. You know, I've studied a lot of different versions of science because, you know, I am a science fiction writer, all right? So when you're a science fiction writer, things are based upon quote-unquote science. And what you're trying to do when you write science fiction is that you're trying to make everything in your world that you create, I guess, seem as believable as possible. And what you do, well, you, you do that by borrowing or even plagiarizing real science that's out there. So you, you know, you do your research, you quote real, you know, theorists, you, you quote real scientific theories, you learn things, you research things just as well as regular scientists do, and you just start weaving your own tale around it. And this is how you get Jurassic Park. You know, Jurassic Park includes a lot of real science in there, such as the science of cloning, the science of taking, you know, DNA, uh, everything, you know, taking frog DNA, you know, using that frog DNA to maybe replace the missing DNA, um, I guess, strands that are in actually a dinosaur. Could it actually be done because it actually mutates? You know, there, these are theories that other scientists have put forward. So it's not necessarily science fiction. The science fiction part of, of Jurassic Park is that they actually ended up doing it. That's the only science fiction part of it. But there are, you know, um, there are practices out there right now where they are actually um, trying to, I guess, um, I guess, uh, I guess, re not rehabilitate, what is the word, to rejuvenate or to not recreate, but to bring, a, I guess, resurrect, I think that's the word, to resurrect the Wally Mammoth? I think they want to resurrect a raptor. Why would you want to resurrect a raptor, though? You know, we've seen movies. I think that's a bad idea. And there's even, I think, uh, plans to even try to resurrect a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Now, I've seen these animals up close when they're in bone form over in the museums. I could not imagine how dangerous that would be. <laughs> like, what kind of pen could actually house, you know, a Tyrannosaurus Rex? It would just jump right over it. Or even a raptor, right? 
So, but anyway, when it comes to science, again, it should never be followed. It should always be debated, right? And even when it comes to COVID, we know for a fact that a lot of things when it came to COVID, they got it wrong. They got it completely wrong. When COVID first dropped in the, in the world, the United States, you know, people were, people were just saying that this is the end of the world. The scientists were just saying it was the end of the world, right? And even now, the, the science that is out there, they're saying, well, you know, we're not going to be able to achieve herd immunity when they, when they themselves, these so-called doctors, right? Again, they're doctors. They're not really scientists, by the way. Like Dr. Fauci, he likes to say he's a scientist and he's also a doctor. He's not neither, to be honest. You know, he's never really treated a patient and he's never really created a vaccine. He just studied things. He's kind of in, kind of in the gray area. He's a government bureaucrat. That's what he is, right? But again, what does he do? He just follows the science out there. He doesn't think back and he doesn't actually take, take a step back and say, huh, is that correct? Is that, is, is, does the data, are we really analyzing the data correctly out here? Or are we just jumping to conclusions? And right now, there's no actual evidence that masks work. There's no actual evidence that certain vaccines work, right? We know for a fact, though, that Pfizer and Moderna do work. Now, when it comes to climate change, though, this is something really, really interesting because we have no idea if their theories are actually right. But we do know that the theories that they pushed on us when climate change was called global warming, by the way, they just rebranded it, right? Because, you know, <laughs> they were wrong. They were wrong and they just, just, they just basically rebranded it, like how people call the Atkins diet, now the South Beach, or they call it the Paleo diet. It's just basically Atkins, all right? So they basically said, hey, you know, global warming, climate change. Oh, we kind of meant the same thing. But now, when's the last time you heard that global warming is something we should actually worry about? They always say climate change. Because when it snows, oh, it's climate change. When it's too warm, it's climate change. When it's too humid, oh, it's climate change. It's much easier to blame you, the CO2 polluter, you know, on, on all of the problems that the, that the earth is having right now. So just to put, set the record straight, all of the things that El Gore had predicted, predicted in his first video, Inconvenient Truth, never came true. None of it. Absolutely none. All right? He made Inconvenient Truth number two a while ago. And just guess what? None of those predictions came true. And he was just basically quoting scientists on the ICPP uh, panel. So all of these scientists got it wrong, yet they, have no, they, they don't want to admit it. You know, and the more data they input into their models, the more likely their models are actually wrong. Now, here's the thing. Now, you may think to me, say, Steve, you're not a scientist. Fine, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an env environmental scientist. But here's the thing I can tell you. We don't know to this very day what causes tornadoes. We really, really don't know. We know the conditions that are needed that are more than likely, uh, you know, to form a tornado. For example, we know for we know somewhat for a fact that you know when we have colder weather coming from the Arctic's and then the warm weather coming from the Gulf and it clashes over like the middle states like Kansas or or Arkansas or you know Mississippi or something like that, right? And it tends to be that clash between cold and warm gives a really big storm cells and that gives birth to possible tornadoes. Well, here's the thing. We've had situations where we had, you know, the perfect, 
perfect ideal conditions for tornadoes. Yet not one tornado was formed. And then there was nothing but perfect clear weather and a freaking tornado forms out of nowhere. You know, tornadoes can form in the winter. They don't have to have that, you know, warm air coming from the, coming from the south. You know, they can, they can form in the summer. You know, so they can form anytime. You know, we've had the, tor- the tornadoes over water. They're called water spots. And we've had them form here in Hawaii when we had perfect weather. It didn't make any sense. Why are we having these water spouts? So scientists till this day have no idea what actually creates a tornado. You can Google it. I actually thought we, we knew, but we, we don't. We don't really have a good idea. Now, the same thing goes with hurricanes. You can have the most ideal situations to create hurricanes, but are we actually going to create a, a, a hurricane? No. No, there's been situations where we said, hey, you know what? It's an El Nino, La Nina, La, El Nino or La Nina, you know, situation when it comes to the water being warmer or colder. We should have more hurricanes, but we don't. And here's the funny thing. The earth has gotten just a little warmer. There's no doubt about it. But we've actually had less storms. Now, I kind of agree with that. You know, that, but you know, the opposite was the, the theory that they pushed on us was actually opposite, which I always said was wrong. What we learned again was what I, to, what I told you is that Cold air from the north and uh, would come down from the north, right? And then the, the warm air from the south would rush up. And when you mix hot and cold, it's like oil and water. And then basically you get an explosion of some sort, right? So in this case, it would be stormy weather. So we were told that with global warming, we would get more hurricanes, stronger hurricanes and more tornadoes and stronger tornadoes and just greater, greater storms, bigger flash floods, you know, greater, greater forms of just catastrophic weather. The truth is that hasn't happened. That has not happened. And I never thought it would happen because what happens is that I think that you don't have that cold air rushing from the north. You have a little warmer air, not that much warmer, but a few degrees warmer. So you're going to have less hurricanes, less tornadoes, less, less bigger storms. We haven't had, you know, as big, you know, much hurricanes here in Hawaii. We haven't, we haven't had many hurricanes here in Hawaii. We are due, we're supposed, at one time, I think back when I was younger, I think it was every 10 years, uh, our island would get hit by a tornado. Now we're like, I think 30 years later, and we're, we still have yet to get hit by one. Again, this was like a deck, you know, one every decade, right? And I think Florida, they would also get hit, I think, once every couple of years. Florida hasn't had a direct hit for a long time, right? So as the earth has warmed, we have less hurricanes. This is exactly opposite what, you know, the climate change models have predicted. But what do they want you to say? What do they want you to do? Don't look at the data. Don't interpret the data. Don't be skeptical. Just follow it. And if you debate it, you don't care about the environment. Now, what really bothers me, though, is that how I can tell is basically, you know, completely false and fake. False, fake, and a bunch of kapui is their solution. What is their solution? Taxes charges. That's what it is. You can pollute. Now, when they say pollute, we're talking about increasing your, your carbon footprint. You can open up your barbecue restaurant. You can take that extra vacation. And you can even maybe have that extra child if you pay a carbon credit. So you can, you can pollute with a fee. So if you're rich enough, you can have a bigger carbon footprint. 
Isn't that kind of strange? So now you're really dividing the entire world, right? Now you're saying the poor can't pollute, right? You, and when they say pollute, you can't have a bigger carbon footprint. So maybe you, maybe you can't afford a bigger car because again, not only, not only will this gasoline car, you know, put more CO2 into the atmosphere, you have to pay a carbon tax on top of that, right? And here's the other thing too. Environmentalists, when I say they're not real environmentalists, is that they don't, they don't want you to look through, I guess, uh, they want you to look at climate change through a periscope with blinders on. So when you look through a periscope, you can only see exactly what's through the periscope. You can't really see a wide angle shot of what's going on around you. So what they want you to look at is basically when they say renewable energy, they want to say, hey, you know what? You can be actually off the grid. You don't have to have gas powered anything, right? You don't have to have natural gas in your home. You can be completely off the grid, completely off coal power, completely off nuclear power, and you can have solar panels and a battery powering your house. Isn't that great? And it's only going to cost you, you know, $20,000, $40,000, and it's worth it because you'll be off the grid and you'll be saving the earth. You will be not part of the problem, you'd be part of the solution. And they want you to keep that little periscope on there. Keep on this periscope. Don't look at the wide angle shot. I want you to look at the close up shot, right? So what happens if we back up and take a look at the wide angle shot? Well, the battery that you put on top of your house, that's a lithium ion battery, or it could be a lithium polymer, depending on your supplier. And number one, they're very explosive. Number two, water and lithium, they don't interact very well together. So somehow you get water onto it, it will explode. And that will be a chemical fire that you won't be able to put out. If you ever have a fire at your house and basically your batteries explode on you, that chemical fire will burn and you can't put it out with water because water would just make it worse. So how do you put out a chemical chemical fire of that sort? You just let it burn. So more than likely, if you have a chemical fire from your battery that's on your house, you're not going to be putting it, putting it out anytime soon. What they also don't want you to know is that the solar panels on top of your roof, well, eventually after a year, they start to lose power and exponentially they start to degrade. And about five or six years, they're basically worthless. So you have to get new solar panels in five or six years. They won't last you 30 years. They won't last you the length of the loan you took out to actually put it up on your roof. Okay? Now, what do you do? You actually have, when you have, in three years, by the way, your battery, your lithium ion battery, three years, you have to trash it. Now, don't believe these scientists who say, hey, the, the, the technology in these batteries are actually very, very good. No, they're the same technology that's in your cell phone. You, in your cell phone, you have a lithium ion battery. And just from your experience of charging it every single day, we know that when you, on the first year that you have your battery on your new phone, it works like a champ. Second year, nah, it's okay. Third year, you're hanging on by a shoestring. You're saying, oh man, I have to carry around a second battery with me because this one doesn't really, my phone can't really hold a charge. So I have to get a new battery. Now, what does it say? You know, before we could take out the batteries on the back of our cell phones, right? And I used to do that. I used to have a note. I think it was a note. I had had an edge note, right? I had a note edge and I could actually change up the battery. Nowadays, they're all built in, right? So my new phone, the new phone that I'm recording on now, it doesn't have a a removable battery. But what did it say on top of the battery? Don't throw in your trash can. Of course, we all threw it in the trash can, right? And uh, and uh, to be honest, you know, my friend and I, what we would do before with our old cell phone batteries, our old lithium ion batteries, we would actually take a knife and we cut it open and let the lithium ion uh, lithium ion battery acid kind of like a uh, actually um, 
uh, drip out there. And then we throw it on the ocean. And then this lithium ion, when it interacts with salt water, it would instantly explode. I mean, it would be a big explosion. And what would end up happening is that this battery would skim across the ocean and keep skimming, 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 exploding, exploding, exploding until we, until we couldn't see it anymore. It was the most, most amazing thing. We do, we're doing this as kids, by the way. So, you know, we're, we're being horrible environmentalists. We're polluting the ocean with, you know, battery acid, which is not good, not recommended. Horrible. I feel guilty of doing it now, but this is what, we, this is the stupid kids that we were back then, right? Now, again, you know, lithium ion. Lithium-ion batteries are in Teslas. They're going to be on the side of your home. And now you have to, in three years, you have to destroy it. Now you have to, you have to dispose of it somewhere, somewhere, right? So where are you going to actually, you know, put it? So I asked these environmentalists, quote-unquote environmentalists, I asked, well, where are you going to put it? Well, they said, well, just, and they don't even know. They said, well, you just throw it in the trash. No, it's, no you can't throw lithium-ion in the trash. So they're just put it in the landfill. You're going to put lithium ion in the landfill? You can't do that. I'm sorry. You just can't do that. You can't even put a regular car battery into the landfill. And so what happens, I'm telling them, if every single three years, we, everyone has a battery on top of their home and, and everyone is driving around an EV vehicle and they're getting rid of their batteries like you wouldn't believe, like spare tires, like used tires, that's how bad it's going to be. Where is all this battery acid going to go? What did they tell me? Oh, Steve, you're not supposed to think like that. Don't think about that. Think about carbon. Carbon's the real problem here. I said, no, lithium ion is also a problem. And all of the, all of the other stuff that the solar panel is made out of, there's so many things out there that are not environmentally friendly. Those can't be disposed inside the landfill either. And they said, well, just don't think about that, Steve. They said, Steve, why are you thinking that way? And now I'm talking to an environmental scientist. They said, Steve, no, 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 no. You got to think that CO2, if we don't do anything about CO2, you know, the earth is just going to boil over. I said, no, but what about the environmental pollution? I said, you know, and they looked at me and said, no, I don't want to talk about that. You know, you're, you're crazy. You're paranoid. You're crazy. I said, so, and I told them, so lithium ion in landfills is not a problem. And they just walked away from me. That's it. They walked away. This is the, this is a science, this is a, environmental scientists, right, who I was talking to, they, that's why they don't want to debate. Because if you, it's not very hard to break apart their entire narrative of them being an environmentalist because they really don't care. Now, I, I got into a debate with another environmental scientist, right? And by the way, environmental scientists, they're coming out of college like you wouldn't believe. You know, and before, the study of science was very specific, Right now, they have environmental scientists where they're not really studying the climate or the or the or land or or water or chemicals or chemistry or anything like that. Environmental science is kind of you know is like overall like an overall uh, umbrella of science, and you're not really an expertise in anything. You're not even really an expertise expertise in, in reasoning. So again, I get into a debate here with an environmental scientist about straws, and they tell me. Well, Steve, it's really obvious why we need paper straws. You know, if you can't see it, you're stupid. I said, well, riddle me this. Okay, riddle me this. The plastic straw floats on top of the ocean, right? If you throw it into the ocean, it floats. And they said, yeah, of course, Steve, it floats. There are pictures of them of like, of like uh, piles of trash in the ocean, Steve, that basically is all together, all together in a big island. It's horrible, like, like, like a continent of trash. 
I said, yeah, agreed. It's horrible. I told them it's really bad, right? And so, so can't you see we have to go to paper? So I asked them, well, what happens to a paper straw? I asked, and they said, well, what, what does it matter what happens? It, it dissolves. It sinks. Oh, you said sink. So it sinks to the bottom of the ocean, right? I said, yeah, it does. And I said, okay, well, have you ever gone scuba diving or diving before? You know, at the bottom of the ocean, what do you find? You find paper cups, you find paper straws, you find magazines and old newspapers. Anything that's paper, it goes to the bottom of the ocean. Eventually, fish do nibble on it, which is not too good, but it does dissolve because that's what salt water does to paper, but that's what it happens. So what happens to the paper straw or paper plates and everything? It, these things go to the bottom of the ocean, and what happens? You can't fish it out. You have to scuba dive to go fish it out. You have to dive deep into the ocean to get it, while the plastic rubbish stays on top. Yeah, you have a continent of trash that's on top of there. It doesn't look nice, but at least you can clean it. When I told them that, their jaw just dropped. And they said, Steve, I'm not talking to you. You don't make any sense. <laughs> These are the quote-unquote environmentalists. Again, they're, they're not thinking clearly. They only, have, they only think through this little periscope, and no one has ever you know, put the wide-angle lens on their camera, on their brain. You know, they always have the little zoom-in lens on their, on their brain, but not the wide-angle lens, and they never can see things outside of the little bubble that they've been taught. Again, the reason why? All, they have, all they've been doing is following the science. They haven't been interpreting it. They haven't, been being a, they haven't become a healthy skeptic of their own science. And because these environmentalists, you know, their solutions and, and everything from their solutions to their, their reasons for like why the climate is actually going up, the, the, the temperatures are going up, you can kind of poke holes in them like a poorly written screenplay. And that's why I, don't, I really don't believe that climate change is an existential threat. And I, I don't think they believe it because they don't want you to debate it. They fear someone like me. They fear someone like me questioning them. Right? And I, and I question every single scientific theory out there because I think it should be challenged. And I ask them very good questions. Very, very, very good questions. Like even when I talk about the theory of evolution, right? And my uncle, who's like the scientist who says he's so smart because he has PhDs and everything. And he believes in the theory of evolution. And he told me, well, Steve, I'm going to tell you how the, how the giraffe came to be. So he said over, so he said, you know, a horse, a regular horse started to pick at the, the tree and the trees got taller and taller and taller. And eventually his neck grew and eventually over. And so I asked him, how long did this process take? And he said, millions of years and millions of generations of actually horses that pick, always loved to eat the higher branches, the fruit that was higher. So I said, okay, that's fine. All right. Millions of years, right? So, so you're telling me that that horse is so stupid that he can't eat at a tree that's lower or graze on grass or hay that's on the ground? And then he looked at me and he said, well, I never thought about it that way. <laughs> and he said, so you're telling me that that horse, you know, over millions of years and generations of, of them, not, they, they just said, you know what, it's a lot easier to actually, you know, get hay or get like, you know, get, get food from a different source. We don't have to, we don't have to keep reaching to the top of the tree. 
And this is the reason why, you know, and animals love to do that because that's the reason why they say, hey, don't feed the animals because when you domesticate animals, they don't really operate that well in the wild because, you know, you know, getting food gets kind of easy for them. They get kind of like lazy, right? That's kind of like how animals do it. So if, right now I have a pet guinea pig, right? I can't release the guinea pig in the wild because it has no idea how to survive in the wild, right? But wild guinea pigs are much different. So that's the, the, the human nature of animals. So I asked him, hey, you know what? You know, would that happen? Would, you know, over millions of years, you're telling me one horse, you know, these horses would not like try to source easier food. And then he told me what all the other liberals and environmentalists told me. Steve, I don't want to talk about it. I just don't. That's it. Because they're so insulting their theology, which has, you know, is, like, is basically their religion. Their science has become their religion. And that's what climate change has become for the left. You know, it's become their religion. And that's why they don't want you to debate it. Because their beliefs are basically based upon faith and nothing more. Faith and hope that what they believe is true. That's all it is. It's purely the same thing as how I believe in Jesus. Faith and hope. That's it. Everything is faith and hope. But in their ways, it's a little different because while I'm, you know, I'm hoping that heaven is real and I'm hoping that my dedication and belief in Jesus Christ would you know, give me the keys to the pearly gates, right? They're believing in the destruction of the earth. They're saying, I hope I'm right. I hope the earth, you know, rises in temperatures because I just want to be validated. You know, a lot of them are like, that. oh, the earth is going to go, the earth is going to go kapui because like it's just getting warmer. And I just hope I'm right. I'm just hoping for the worst, which brings, which makes them a little demented. Now, there's another reason. There's a couple more reasons why I don't, I don't believe in a, a man-made climate change in the theory that they're pushing for me. Forest fires, too. Now, because I barbecue, you know, burning wood is my thing. That's what I do for fun. I burn wood. Now, I do know this. If it's very, very hard to actually burn wood, it's very, very hard. I mean, with the, with, even with the hottest fire, it's really tough to burn like a tree to the ground because there's, there's just so much water in there. And trees are basically, I think they're basically bombproof almost. You know, if, if you ever take a look at, uh, these, um, these videos of like the, of the nuclear bomb, you see the trees are still standing. A lot of the, a lot of the trees are still standing. Their leaves may all get blown up, but even then it's very hard to really, you know, burn a tree. You know, in order to, in order to burn a tree, a piece of wood really well, it has to be cut, it has to be split, and then it has to be dried. And if it's not dried for six to eight months, it's it won't burn very good. And on top of it, if it's not split, it won't burn very good. So you can actually have a very dry piece of wood, a dry a dry tree trunk that's maybe the length of your car on the side of your house, and your house could catch on fire, but that tree trunk won't catch on fire. Because it's that hard to light. Now, in, or if you want to light that piece of wood, that the trunk on fire, you have to cut it, you have to split it, and then those splits would then need to be dried. And that's why if you look at forest fires, you look at forest fires and you, you look at them, at the aftermath, you'll still see most of the trees still left. The leaves will all be burnt out, down and they may have lost some of their branches, but their trunks are still there. And that's why they come back pretty easily. And that's why a lot of controlled forest fire burns 
it actually does help. Now, where are, what's hap- how are the majority of these like forest fires happening? It's basically, basically a, a matter of, um, of brush because all that brush, um, all those little leaves and everything that, that, the, that, that drops onto the ground, those are highly, highly flammable. I mean, it's really, really highly flammable. I mean, if you throw a cigarette or a little, it, just a little, a little, um, piece of hot ash goes onto there, it, it they all can catch and, and, that, and it burns so fast. It burns really, 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 really fast. And, and, and by the way, like, I know you've seen, but, you know, I've, I know you've seen forest fires and the trees are actually on fire. What you're seeing burning usually are just the leaves. That's how hot it can get. But that's the reason why forest fires eventually just burn themselves out because they're not really burning the tree trunks. They're just running out of small brush and leaves to actually burn. So with that being said, if your atmosphere is maybe just a little bit hotter, it doesn't mean that this tree is going to spontaneously combust. It doesn't mean that, you know, you're going to have more forest fires. The only reason why you have more forest fires is bad forest management. But the climate change people and the scientists out there, they're saying that, oh, the earth is getting so hot that these forests, these forests, these trees, they're just spontaneously combusting. You know, I wish burning wood was that easy. But I can tell you, if you have green wood, Right, wood that is not seasoned. When I say seasoned, not not when it's split and not put out there on the side, and you put that piece of wood into the firebox, which is about seven hundred to eight hundred degrees, which is way hotter than the temperature out there, it's not going to catch fire. It's not going to catch fire, and you'll be pulling out your hair saying, "Why isn't it catching fire?" And all you're going to be doing is is giving out white billowing smoke that will make your meat taste horrible. I would not want a climate change environmentalist to actually smoke anything because all they'll do, all they'll do is, is put in fresh wood and just give you dirty smoke. So their entire theory of forest fires, by the way, is just entirely wrong. I can tell you that not from my experience of being a scientist, but my experience, my experiences of burning wood. Now, last thing before I go, this one I was kind of saving to the end. All right. Why do I think the theory of climate change is actually flawed um, over and over again? I, I, was watching, <laughs> I was watching this show called The Unexplained. I think this was maybe about a couple weeks ago. It's with William Shatner, by the way. And they had this episode on the moon. And this is really incredible. I, I had no idea, I guess, how much an effect the moon has on the earth. Not only on our tides, but also our weather. All right? Now... I didn't know that our moon is really, really, really large. And um, it's just really incredible. And it's at the right distance right now where we can actually have a, a, you know, a solar eclipse. This is really interesting. Now, here's the interesting thing. The, when the moon completes a rotation around the Earth, right, it, because it is orbiting us like, like how we orbit the sun, what it's actually doing, because it, there is a mag- magnetic pull that the moon has on us. Not only is it churning our tides, which affect the which affect weather patterns, it is also churning the lava underneath the Earth's crust. It's actually churning um, what's underneath our, our Earth's crust. Isn't that amazing? Like stirring it. And what happens is that stirring motion. This is what causes the radiation field around the Earth. Now, what does this electromagnetic radiation field do to us? Now, 
What it does primarily is that it reflects solar radiation rays away from the Earth. So as long as the moon would actually keep rotating and causing this churning motion around the Earth, well, the Earth will maintain its temperature. Now, here's the thing. That moon has actually changed its speed. And I guess it has taken sometimes a little longer and a little, a little less longer, right, to, come, to, to make a full rotation around the Earth. And that has coincided with, you know, changes in our temperature. So isn't that amazing? Because again, if it takes a little longer to get around, then the radiation or that electromagnetic magnetic waves around the Earth is a little less, and that means uh, less, uh, more solar radiation can come that that can enter the Earth's atmosphere. Isn't that pretty interesting? So these little degrees, these little ticks in temperature that go up and down, up and down, up and down. Well, part of it has to do with the moon's rotation around the Earth. Isn't that pretty interesting? On top of that, the Earth's atmosphere, the Earth, our own Earth is actually, its orbit is also changing. So sometimes we get closer to the sun and sometimes we get farther away from the sun. That also affects our temperature. And then on top of that, the sun itself is not a stable source of energy when it comes to, to our temperature. You know, it's very much explosive. It is, on, it is constantly exploding. So it's not giving us out equal temperature every single time. What's really equaling it out is this solar radiation, not solar radiation, this electronic magnetic field, this, this elect electromagnetic field generated by the moon that is kind of evening, and evening, evening out the solar radiation to us. So the climate model is so complicated, but it doesn't take in to all of what I just told you. It doesn't take into to the moon churning the magma. It doesn't take into a difference of our, our orbit around the sun changing. It doesn't take into, um, I guess, consideration that the sun's temperature does change from hot, little colder, little hotter, right? It doesn't take into, it doesn't take that into any matter. It, no consideration. So, and here's also the other thing too. Now I'll go back to my barbecuing thing, okay? You know, there's no such thing when you barbecue as an exact temperature. We, we, we love to take a look at our, 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 um, our barbecue and say, hey, we're such a good pit master, we can keep the temperature around 275 or so. But the truth is, it does vary a little. Even at our best, it varies maybe to 280, 260, 275 and everything like that, right? Now, here's the thing. You know, the earth has not warmed in these big swings like how my barbecue pit does, right? It, it has not even warmed at that, at that rate whatsoever. It's warmed maybe a quarter of a degree, a tenth of a degree. That graph, that little hockey, that hockey stick graph that you've seen, look at the, look at the temperature on the side. We're talking about a hundredth degree, a tenth of a degree, a hundredth of a degree. There's actually no way to measure degrees that accurately with any type of confidence none whatsoever if i poke my brisket in one side of the in one side it'll come out to say 203.5 and the other side will be 203.7 and another part will be 205.1 and then i'll average it all together and say oh i think the brisket is about done right now it's true It'll, it'll, it'll basically be, 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 be done, right? But here's the thing. 
if I were to graph it out, I would show that basically this is a this brisket measures at 203. It's fine. It's done. 203. When you take a look at our, at our temperature range, the global warming temperature, they zoom in the graph and they make this temperature gauge so sensitive and they make it as though the earth can't handle a tenth, a hundredth of a degree. And that's what you're looking at. A hundredth and a, and a tenth of a degree in raise, in a rise or a decline. How do you know that's accurate? There's no way to measure the Earth's temperature with any accuracy into a tenth or a hundredth. What is the margin of error? Again, like I told you my brisket, you know, I say pull it out at 203. But again, when you, you, you temperature probe it, it's 203.1, 205, 202. The temperature ranges are all over the place. But when you average it out, okay, it's, a, it's around 203. And that's like what the Earth is. Now, why are we panicking when it's a, a tenth of a degree higher or a couple of tenths of a degrees higher over the course of like 50 years? Why are you panicking? If you zoomed out that, if you zoomed out on that, um, that, that uh, temperature graph of the Earth, it would basically be a flat line, a completely flat line. But because they zoom in, and you see all these little jagged, you know, razor teeth there. The only reason why you see this, the graph looks like razors or like razor teeth is because they zoomed in. And then they're on, on top of that, they zoomed in to a point where they're counting a hundredth of a degree that, as though it's accurate. I can't even measure my brisket within a hundredth of a degree accuracy. And they're measuring the earth within a hundredth of a degree accuracy. Give me a break. It can't be done. You don't even measure the human temperature range model like that, right? When, you know, by the way, you say you're, you're, you should be this this hot, right? You, we, we do those the little little temperature gauges like in front of the when we, now with that we have to enter in all to all these like stores. We have to scan our forehead, right? And every single time it's a different tenth of a degree. <laughs> if it was a little bit higher by one tenth. They would say we are overheating. The Earth is your body's overheating, when the truth is not, right? But according to the global warming global warming alarmists, when the Earth is a tenth of a tenth of a degree hotter or a hundredth of a degree hotter, it's actually overheating. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Who does that? Who measures temperature in a hundredth of a degree? Okay, I'm repeating myself, but. Again, it doesn't make any sense. I have not gotten into a debate with a scientist about that, but I'm sure they have a reason. <laughs> All right, people, that's it for my show for today. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, again, if you like my podcast, you can subscribe to it. Uh, if not, then screw you. <laughs> I'll talk to you guys later. <laughs>